From the Ryerson Review of Journalism, this is Pull Quotes. I'm Jacob McNair. And I'm Laura Howells. By now, you've probably heard the story, and then the story about how there wasn't a story. An 11-year-old girl says a man attacked her on the way to school, cutting her hijab with a pair of scissors. Just a few hours later, there's a media appearance at the girls' school, where she speaks to throngs of reporters alongside her family, police, and school board officials. Police say they are investigating the attack as a hate crime. Politicians are quick to condemn it, and people across the country express shock and support. And then... Well, three days later, the police announced the attack never happened, and that kicks off a whole other news cycle. There were a lot of questions about how the case was handled by everyone involved, including by the media. Jenna Moon and Fatima Syed are Toronto Star reporters who covered this story from the beginning. They spoke to me about their experience and what they've learned. One quick note that Fatima and Jenna are of course speaking from their own experience and not on behalf of Torstar. And in the interest of full disclosure, Fatima and I worked together last summer at the Toronto Star. Fatima and Jenna, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. So this was a pretty wild story in the way that it all unfolded. For people who might not be familiar with just how fast it all happened, can you take us back to that Friday morning when the news first came out about this? Sure. So I had been working in the Star's radio room. So the Toronto police had tweeted out approximately 9.30 that a girl walking to school had had her hijab cut by an attacker. I sat on that for about 30 minutes, waiting for new information to come through, called police, couldn't get through, just kind of decided to sit on it and see what else came out. About 45 minutes, give or take, after that first um, tweet that they put out, we got a follow-up tweet saying, actually, there were two victims, which prompted me to call asking if it was, you know, were there two victims total? Was there two more victims? So three victims total. Um, in which they confirmed with me over the phone, um, this is two people that have been attacked. I hung up that phone call and immediately they put in another tweet clarifying saying, no, this is actually just one person that was attacked twice. So the span of those three tweets went over a course of about an hour and a half. From the time that we got that first tweet to Fatima getting to the school is probably also an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Between those three tweets, I must have been on the phone with the police 10 plus times trying to get details. Through speaking with people, they made it very clear what had happened based on the reports that they were giving. Um, they said this was the report that they had gotten from officers on the ground. They were still investigating that kind of thing, but confirmed to us that it been reported by other officers that this had happened and that the tweets were accurate. So then within a, a matter of hours, there there is a media availability at the school. Yeah, so I first learned about the issue from Twitter as well. Actually, I saw Jenna retweet the, the sort of initial Toronto Police tweet. Uh, tweet rather um and I was like oh what's this like this seems very bad and sort of I I knew the editors in the newsroom was sort of keeping an eye on it and they're like yeah you should go to the school and check it out so I got there around 11 30 and by this point you have three Toronto police tweets and no other information and we're standing outside the school it's very cold that day very wet very windy and uh it's just you know the lineup of journalists that you can see like every single outlet is there I was told by another journalist that, you know, they're going to hold a press conference at around 12, so I'm waiting. And then before I know it, it's like, oh, it's going to happen inside, and we're like, oh, thank God, because it's so cold. Like, yes, we can do it inside. And then suddenly we're at the school, and we're expecting TDSB, well, I should say I, I can't speak for everyone else, but I'm expecting TDSB officials and Toronto police officials to come out and explain what happens. 
instead what happens is in walks this this 11 year old girl with her young brother and her mother and her grandmother and a TDSP person and for a second like I was like wait what's going on I'm, I'm sorry what because you know traditionally kids don't appear uh, when when these kind of instances happen next thing you know like it just happens super fast she walks in she's standing at the podium she's speaking about the incident reporters are asking her questions she's answering them then her mom is speaking then her brother's speaking um and, and suddenly like we have a story that's firsthand and not from toronto police anymore as soon as we walk into the school and set up in in that library within a matter of minutes everything like the story's in front of us and and we're all reporting on it without a second thought because all the adults were in the room and we didn't have a reason to question it. So as you say, I mean, children in these sort of circumstances when they're the victim of a crime often or usually aren't identified in the media. Was identifying this girl ever something that you thought about at the time or did, did anything feel strange to you? Were you second guessing anything? We knew that she was 11 years old. So when she walked in and uh, for a second, I'm just like, why is she here? But then the TDSB official and her mother and her grandmother are right there and they're like, tell them your name. How do you spell that? And she's spelling out her name and, and suddenly we have her name and seemingly, visibly, like what we're seeing with the permission of TDSB officials and her parents. And Toronto Police is like there too in the room. So like we didn't have a reason to question it. I think all of that also kind of added a layer of credibility to her story at the time. We see the Toronto Police suites, we see the TDSB at the school, we see her family at the school. She's giving her name at a press conference doing something that's completely unheard of for children in the media. Um, and she's talking to a room full of reporters. And who do you corroborate police information with except for maybe the victim of the crime? And there she is telling you her story, surrounded by family, being corroborated by her younger brother, children, as we've learned, are not reliable sources, but at the time, given everything that had been going on, we had no reason to doubt her story. It was all very clear to us what had happened. Yeah, and we, we got multiple confirmations of the spelling of the family's name, like TDSB officials like brought out, you know, they, they confirmed the spelling of their names, like people were tweeting out the information as soon as she started speaking, like like there were journalists on, the phone, on their phones, like tweeting the information out. There was no hesitation because it checked all the boxes, like all the boxes were checked and it seemed like it was perfectly fine, it was perfectly valid, it was perfectly legitimate. Yeah, and I mean usually the bar for identifying kids or speaking to kids in the media is parental consent. And um, and, and last Friday, the Toronto Star's public editor, Kathy English, published a column saying that the Star never had a conversation about whether to publish the girl's name and photographs um, because like you said, it, it checked all the boxes. I mean, I had that in. I had that initial moment of hesitation when she walked into the room, and I saw her and her little brother, and they're very young children. Like you can just look at them, say they're very young children, and I had the initial thought where I'm like, "What is happening?" But once they started speaking with the permission of everyone, it's like you're in reporting mode. You're just reporting the story, and you got to get all the facts out there. And everyone around you is doing the same. So, you know, afterwards there was a moment like after the entire story was done and sort of, you know, the, the real facts came through uh, a couple of days later, I, I remember talking to Jenna and I'm like, did I screw up by not remembering that initial hesitation and coming back and, and speaking about it? Like, like to your editors? To or? your editors, or yeah, or just to, to even Jenna, who was my partner in writing at the time and reporting. And I remember thinking that and feeling really guilty for some reason, even though like I had done nothing wrong because all the adults were in the room and, and I, all the bases were covered. So then the, the news comes out that this story is false and, and the attack didn't actually happen. I mean, 
the Star and a lot of other media outlets are no longer running the name, girl's name in your stories. They're blowing her face in photographs. But you can still find old stories that mention her name and her photo on website and, and several other types of websites. How do you feel about that? Unfortunately, this is probably going to follow this girl for the rest of her life. I hope that it doesn't, and I hope that she can come back from it. What I see is a girl that got caught up in a very big lie, but she's a young child, and I think that we need to forgive her for that. She caused a bit of a national and international hoopla with her lie, and I think that it was kind of probably something that she was trying to cover up and doing what children do and lying to her parents about something, and it got blown out of proportion. But I think that we need to move past it on our sides and just kind of forgive her for what happened. And I hope that people can take the step of removing her name so that this doesn't follow her permanently. I'd hate to see her 10 years from now trying to find a job and a Google search brings this up from when she was 11. It's a sad situation all around. But at the time, as Fatima said quite succinctly, it made sense to be doing what we were doing. And it was a sad turn of events to find out that it wasn't correct. We, we spoke to a media expert at the time sort of getting their insight, and someone described it as a perfect storm of errors. It was a very powerful story. An 11-year-old who wears a hijab walking to school and, you know, and a stranger pulls down her hood and cuts her hijab, that's a powerful story. And then she's speaking at the school, her family's worried for the safety of the community and the safety of herself, and just in the climate that we're living in and just the news that we're, we're covering, it was the perfect story. And... And later on, it was the perfect storm of errors, as he said. So I think there's a greater conversation to have here about how we cover events that are seemingly racist or Islamophobic or homophobic or, you know, whatever the broad range that fits into sort of those kind of stories. I think there's a broader conversation to have about how we're covering them, how we're reacting to them as, as journalists, like... I'm, I know that after this experience, I'm going to be careful every time something comes up and I'm going to be very cautious and double and triple check everything just to make sure because at the end of the day, it was just an allegation, right? There was no proof. And even though we were using the word allegedly, it turned out to be not true. So we have to, I think we just have to be more cautious when covering these kind of stories. When news first broke that the allegation was false, there was a lot of backlash um, from certain media outlets, but also from the public. And I know reporters often get the brunt of that backlash. Um, what's been showing up in your email inboxes? I wish that I could not have lived through this past week, honestly. There's two layers to this. There, there were the people that didn't believe her initially. Um, those were the emails that we got on the Friday, where people coming through saying that we didn't actually believe what she said, she's lying. At the time, we had no reason to think that she was lying. So we mostly just brushed those emails off. Come the Monday after the news broke that it was false, I think Fatima and I both had our inboxes explode. And I would even say that mine probably less so because I conveniently have a very white name and people probably weren't reaching out to tell me what they thought about things. Yeah, it was not the best experience. <laughs> um, definitely the, the vitriol attack, uh, like, attacking the fat girl and her family was was very hard to read just because you know if you imagine yourself as an 11 year old kid who, who told a lie and then being told to be deported or to 
you know, have to stand there and apologize or, or getting someone to say, oh, social services should be called to your parents just because you told that lie. It, it was very difficult to read. And, and then there was the added layer of people asking me to be deported and, and me to be fired for, for the reporting. I mean, it's not, it's not right, but uh, this is the kind of mail you sometimes get. Like, people have very strong reactions to stories like this, especially stories that so quickly go one way and then suddenly, like, the world turns upside down and they're completely the opposite way. So it's been more than a week now, and, and you've had some time to sort of think things over and reflect. What's going through your mind these days, and, and what do you think you're going to take away from this? I think it's all about caution. And I don't know, maybe there's a broader conversation to have about the re- you know, the sources that we consider reliable all the time, and just how careful we have to be even just reporting from them. What I've been kind of thinking about since all of this broke, yes, obviously we're going to be more careful moving forward. What Fatima and I took a lot of time to look at were cases where this has happened before and there were a lot we found at least six between the u.s and canada within the last 10 years where some child had lied and it made national news obviously we weren't the reporters on either side of those and we didn't see the backlash that came from those things but there was a similar case in milton where a boy um, said that a teenager attacked him with a knife slashed his shirt started yelling racial slurs at him and then ran away at recess Same age, he was about 12 years old, grade six student, and there were no witnesses. And the police were on scene at the school. CP24 reported it, CTV reported it. We didn't report it. I had seen the story break that day. I was also in the radio room, and it was one of those things where I just decided to hold off on what had happened, but I did manage to get in touch with the boy's father, who told me what had happened to his son, and he confirmed the events that had happened. And in speaking with the editors, they said, well, maybe hold off on it. It seems a bit strange. And I didn't write on it or publish it. And I was this close to writing another story that might have had the same thing happen with it. So it, it's one of those things. It, it comes up more than people probably realize. And the backlash that came from all of this was just one of several that we were able to find. So is it a new thing? Not really. Do we have to be more careful moving forward? Absolutely, we do. This is a huge learning experience for two people that are pretty new in the industry and trying to you know, start our careers. And there was this feeling of like, are we even people that are still going to be trusted after this? And yes, absolutely. We're still doing our due diligence. We're working on everything that comes forward and we're verifying all of the information that we have. It just happened that this perfect storm of errors was what led us into this weird, crazy, week-long situation. That was Fatima Syed and Jenna Moon, both journalists at the Toronto Star. You might have heard Fatima on an older episode of Pull Quotes. She's also an alumna of the Ryerson Review. So this story has obviously prompted a lot of reaction and commentary. Jacob also spoke with two people who've joined the conversation in the press. Joseph Breen is a journalist with the National Post, and Amira El-Gawabi recently wrote an opinion piece about this situation in the Globe and Mail. I spoke to them both last Friday. Amira, what do you make of how the media has responded to this story? Well, I mean, I think that um, everyone was responding in the moment. uh, And so I don't really think there was a lot of reflection as to, uh, you know, putting a a minor in front of, you know, the cameras uh, in a story that was, you know, about to go national and international. I think that everyone was caught up in the story itself, uh, very alarmed by what this young girl was saying. Um, I think that the school board um, also didn't really uh, provide the family, the mom, 
uh, with enough, I think, understanding of, of uh, what it meant to go public on the story. And what I understand is that um, the reason the family went public was they were just concerned um, about, you know, this man that the, the, the young girl described being out on the streets, potentially, uh, you know, able to harm someone else. So, so everything I, I can imagine happened rather quickly, and I don't think anyone really stopped to think. But I hope that the way that it all uh, unfolded um, will be sort of uh, an opportunity for media to reflect as to, okay, in such a scenario, what should we have been doing differently? And uh, what do you think journalists should be taking away from this? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, um, there has to be uh, some thinking around how uh, children are, are being, um, you know, shown in the media. How are we carrying their voices? Uh, when, when it comes to uh, an issue where there could have could be criminal charges. Typically, there would be a publication ban on the name of a minor. Uh, so here we were talking about a potential assault. Um, so um, I think that uh, the, the media at that point should have uh, recognized that they wouldn't have been able to or shouldn't have been able to um, identify her, uh, show her face, or um, give her name. Uh, I think that that should have been uh, thought about. Um, and I think that there could have been a way to you know, to cover the issue, so as if there was indeed someone um, out there, uh, potentially, who just harmed this young girl, um, that pe- the public would be alerted, would uh, be on the lookout, um, but that um, this young girl, whether it was true or not, would not be at the center of uh, such a media uh, storm. Mm-hmm. And as you say, this does bring up a lot of questions around interviewing and identifying children. Um, Joseph, how how do you think journalists should be approaching stories that involve children, even when everyone seems to be giving consent? I think, as reporters, we should approach it with the utmost of caution. Um, uh, we have the ability to to send a person's name and 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 picture. Uh, widely to millions of people and uh, for children who are victims of, of crime or children who are in any sort of vulnerable situation that that is uh, something that should be in the forefront of a reporter's mind um, we we like hard and fast rules we like we even like publication bans because they're clear um, we find it harder I think to exercise good judgment and as Amira was saying that was a very fast moving situation um, in which the subjects who were giving consent were doing it through tears. The mother was clearly upset at the thought that her daughter had been assaulted perhaps as, as little as an hour or so ago. Um, and I think uh, whatever the columnists eventually make of it in terms of how it reflects our national identity or police policy or this sort sort of thing. I think a reporter needs to have in mind that there is a difference between what you legitimately know and what you can fairly report. Um, there's no shame, I don't think, in asking people for interviews and for comment in vulnerable situations. Um, it doesn't mean you have to use it. And we're having a discussion in, in the newsroom about this, actually, with a, uh, me and a, and a reporter. We're wondering, I wasn't actually at the school, but we were wondering if, as you were watching this, you started to get cold feet as a reporter and think, for whatever reason, the, it's a child, 
um, if charges come, there would be a publication ban. If for whatever reason you started to get cold feet and think we shouldn't be reporting this in quite the detail that we're about to, could you have walked it back? And I think, unfortunately, when there's half a dozen news cameras and a dozen reporters in a school library, everyone feeding back to their own newsroom, um, I think it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for a reporter to exercise that judgment. And I think that is part of the disaster that that we saw at that school. And I think that that is the part that um, the media in particular ought to, to reflect on. Mm-hmm. And what responsibility do you think the media has now to, to this girl? Like um, some news outlets have uh, blurred her face or retracted her name. Several have only done it now and aren't doing it for previous stories. And you yourself named the girl in your subsequent article on the subjects. What, what kind of responsibility do we owe as journalists to her now? I think we owe a similar responsibility to her. She's still a child, and she ha- has made a mistake that, for from a news perspective, is 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 sort of now private. It's she. It's it's not really our business anymore. That said, part of the tragedy here is that you can't scrub the internet clean. Um, you cannot call the horse back into the barn. Uh, the name is out there. The picture is out there, and frankly, I think it's a little bit quaint to 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 read. I believe it's the CBC's statement saying that they are declining to name her or use her photo in future stories, but they're going to leave the old ones up. Um, anybody who knows how the internet works knows that that doesn't matter. You can Google up both of those stories, and 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 insofar as it affects her life. There's no no difference there. Um, I personally suggested to an editor that we don't name her. I had been asked my thoughts on a on a day long conversation among the editors uh, whether to name her, um, and my contribution to that debate late in the day was that no, I think we should forget we ever knew her name um, and tell the story as we know it without identifying her again. But I also said that I think that instinct of mine is probably wrong, in large part because there is no legal reason not to name her and basically for the fact that that it's already out there. And um, it's important that I, as a reporter, operate, I think, in that professional structure where I defer to higher judgments, and and that's how it went, and, and we named her. Um, Amira, what do you think about the responsibility journalists have to to this girl? Well, I mean, I think that in a perfect world, um, you know, all of the stories about um, her would remove her name um, and her image. I think that would be a 
you know, the perfect situation that I would hope. But that being said, it is the Internet. That's not the way it is. And there are many, many of us who sometimes will, uh, you know, see something that maybe we wrote or, or a picture or something that lives online for a long time, and there's nothing you can necessarily do about that. Um, I know that in Europe there has been debates about this and that there is uh, a law called uh, the right to be forgotten, and uh, this is a discussion that has been had in certain parts of uh, the Western world, at least, um, but it hasn't really come to Canada. So I think that's a broader conversation. Um, But in terms of this situation now, I mean, I I appreciate that um, journalists are no longer um, saying her name uh, or using her image. Most most journalists aren't, or media outlets aren't. Um, I think that's a good thing. Um, You know, and at the end of the day, um, it it was an event. It happened. um, It was reported on. um, And... um, the, you know, the sort of the whole unfolding of the story up until the apology uh, is online. And so um, it's, it's, it's unfortunate in the sense that I, I wouldn't want to be this young 11-year-old girl because I would feel that this is going to hang over me for a long time. You know, once I'm an adult, maybe I wouldn't be as concerned with it. But um, certainly when she, as a teenager, you know, when she goes to school, unfortunately kids are mean sometimes, and even adults too. Um, I think you can see that with all the comments. Um, that are probably, you know, more more disturbing than even the episode itself, just the way that people, um, you know, responded to what happened. Um, so I think I think it's it's a painful a painful experience I'm sure for this family, um, and I think that at the very least going forward, I hope that um, all all parties that were um, part of this. Um, despite the good intentions, will review their protocols and will rethink um, how, you know, how they cover, how they report to the public on topics and incidents like like this, uh, whether they turn out to be true or false. Obviously, this story also falls very close to the uh, one-year anniversary of the Quebec mosque shooting. It's a very... um, it's very closely tied to how we as the media approach Islamophobia and how we talk about it on a national level. Now, Joseph, your article in the Post uh, argued that this was, in a sense, an example of both left and right-wing media uh, needing to use Muslims as a test of our nation's authenticity. Could you explain uh, what your thoughts are? Questions of national identity um, often come down to people who are seen as outsiders. And Canada puts its welcoming of outsiders at the core of its identity. Donald Trump puts his exclusion of outsiders at the core of his identity. And, and, and both of those strategies are, are powerful um, in the, the political context. They, they are what wins elections and what loses elections. And I think it's important for reporters to know when they are told by their editor to scramble to some event, it's important for them to understand when a news story is about more than it's about. Uh, and in in my story, I, I, re- I referenced an episode in, in Toronto of a few years ago in, in which a girl made a similar false claim about being attacked on the street by a man who tried to drag her into a van. And she fought off, and, and, and uh, uh, this was later re- revealed to be false. Now, it played out very differently, and there, there was never any suggestion of putting her on television. No one knew who she was. And I think at least part of the reason is that it didn't trip the same cultural and political alarms that 
the hijab does. It immediately becomes about more than it's actually about. I think you can even see in the news today if uh, there there's a, a L'Oreal makeup campaign where a model's wearing a hijab and everyone's getting very excited about it. I, I, I called stories that involve the hijab guaranteed clickbait, and I think that that is true for for some reasons that are very dark and ugly. And I think the high-level political response to this reflected the fact that this story, you know, slipped the bonds of its immediate breaking news context and became a matter for the prime minister to talk about our identity as the Canadians, who who we we are. That that is a peril of stories like like these because it went it went very fast from a thinly detailed breaking news context to a grand national narrative. Uh, and when those things come crashing down with the revelation of of dishonesty, uh, it's a much, much bigger story than if a child had simply said that a creepy guy grabbed her and, and there was no um, religious accommodation aspect. Amir, I just want to get your thoughts on this, on, on how the media can use Muslims to test our, our identity as Canadians or... Well, I mean, you know, I don't like talking about the media as a monolith. Um, you know, there's all sorts of media out there and different journalists and different treatments of stories and, and focus. Um, but certainly I think um, there is, um, I, I wouldn't necessarily call it a fascination, but a, a, but a focus on our communities. Um, that really hasn't let up and let up for many, many years. I would say, you know, post 9/11, um, you know, our communities have sort of been under the microscope, and for a variety of reasons, in a different different ways, uh, we continue to uh, to be under the microscope. And so, um, this this story, um, I think, on one hand, and I think it was it was a good point to say that you know we generally have a narrative in this country that we are a welcoming. Uh, place uh, that we want diversity, that we um, are inclusive, uh, which sometimes masks many, many realities of, you know, beginning with, the, you know, our um, our colonial uh, legacy um, and the relationship um, and the impression of Indigenous communities um, coming up till now, where you still have, um, you know, many Indigenous communities that are suffering um, in, in unfair ways of how they've been treated by our uh, various governments, as well as various communities um, that have very um, uh, oppressive relationships with various state institutions, whether it's the black community, whether it's um, other racialized communities. So there is a reality uh, that's not necessarily always reflected in the mainstream because often journalism is all about the quick story now. There's a lot less resources to actually investigate and look at systems uh, to identify where there, there may be things going wrong. And so while you know, in, in intuitively, we, we know that, you know, things cannot be perfect in Canada. A story like this is a really easy way to say, oh, yeah, it's not perfect. See, um, there are bad things that do happen. And it's quickly easy to point to the attack on the street as saying, oh, something is going wrong. And, and it, you know, it's this one individual who did this. And so it, it very much can, can quickly become um, a big story. And we can then sort of wring our hands and say what, what's happening in our country and 
oh, you know, is this Donald Trump's impact and not really looking at actually more intrinsic issues of discrimination that, for instance, the Ontario Human Rights Commission just wrote, a, wrote about in a recent report in December, identifying that up to 45% of workers have experienced discrimination on the job, for instance. You know, these are much more daily um, realities that, that different folks are facing that we don't really get um, a, a fair treatment in the media because simply put, A, our newsrooms are not reflective of the diversity of this country, and B, as I said, there's not a lot of resources. And so it's a quick story where you you know, you go, you go to a school, you show up, you take some, some pictures, you, you get a few quotes, and up goes a story, you get all the audience you need and to, to get the ads going, and, and there you have it. You've got a, a story that sort of gets at some of the issues that we're trying to get at without really doing much work work. Um, so, I mean, this is a much broader conversation, and I'm glad that, you know, your listeners will, will have an opportunity to think about this. Um, but I, I, I definitely hope that, that journalism, as we adapt to sort of new realities of the journalism landscape, that um, that we go deeper and that um, it isn't this that captures everyone's imagination, but that we talk more about systemic changes that are required and that we do talk about the attitudes that lead to hate crimes targeting all sorts of communities in this country. The black community is the most targeted community uh, when it comes to hate crimes, and we rarely hear about that. We rarely hear those experiences. Um, so I think I think it's very important that um, the public as well um, looks and rewards that kind of journalism that is deep, that is thoughtful, that um, goes beyond the clickbait. Did you want to I was going to say that breaking news reporting is hard, and can be very important, as this case shows. It's not just about showing up, grabbing a quick few quotes, and leaving. It's about responding to important events as they happen and getting information accurately and quickly as you can. And there's just as much glib, surface-level coverage of reports that come out of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, for example, as, as there is... Uh, in the breaking news context. It is important for a reporter to realize the context in which the news that they're reporting on is happening. Statistics are important. The, the broader context of, of history and politics is, is Im important, and it's incumbent on uh, a breaking news reporter in a situation like that to realize both where their story fits in these debates and issues, and but also who's going to try to exploit it. And you ought to be aware of it, and you don't need to play into it. I guess finally, for, for both of you, um, one of the biggest things that people are reflecting about now is uh, just the question of where we go from here and how, the, how this affects uh, people's trust in the Canadian media. And how so... Um, Amira, you can go first on this. How do we bounce back or rebuild any trust uh, we might have lost from our readers? Yeah, I, I think that's a good question. And unfortunately, various polls um, here in Canada show that um, people, um, Canadians, are losing trust in the government and in media institutions, um, sort of all of these important spaces where you, you would hope that information is being provided to the public in order to make 
informed choices, informed decisions, um, and to be able to also participate uh, in our democracy. So how we bounce back, um, I think it, I think ideally we would hear from um, the media and the different outlets on how they're going to move forward and what they've learned from this um, this example. Um, and I, I think that that would be really important. I think that time will tell if uh, if we continue to see uh, sensationalizing of a story like this. Hopefully we won't see another story like this, but should it happen, uh, I hope that it will be treated very differently. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, um, you know, people also need to understand that uh, mistakes happen. And this was a colossal one, um, on I think, on many people's parts. Um, and um, everyone was trying to do the right thing, and I think credit should be placed there because at the same time, um, you know, when people do report, we should also be providing them a space to talk about their experiences. So it's 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 it was a very difficult balance that day, I'm sure, um, and and unfortunately it turned out the way it did. But I think it is an opportunity to review protocols on everyone's parts in terms of the school, the police, and the media, um, and uh, and then just move forward. Just in particular, which protocols did you have in mind? So uh, so just to recap, you know, basically how schools whether uh, they should be providing proper advice to families before the family is finding itself in front of media cameras, the police. Um, the police's tweet that identified the school um, inadvertently led to many media outlets rushing to the school. Um, and uh, and then, of course, for the media, uh, when it is involving a minor, um, they should, I believe, ref- you know, and there may have been some kind of crime, uh, they should uh, refrain from identifying the minor. And uh, Joe, what are your thoughts for lessons for the media? I can't really fault the police for tweeting out the location of a active assault suspect who's a targeting a child. Uh, that is a matter of public interest. That is a matter of current investigation. Uh, they didn't name the child. Um, and if it had been, I, I mean, I think, the parents would want to know that. I think the city would want to know that, and especially the media, as as the voice of that sort of thing, would would want to go to to that location quite quite um, rightly. Certainly, the school has a lot to to answer for um, for facilitating an interview with a hate crime with what was thought to be a hate, hate crime victim within an hour of of the crime, and they'll they will do what they do i i call it a disaster but i'm not sure that there are major you know exercises in rebuilding media trust to be done here i i think the reporters did at, did did what they should have have done uh and got more than they should have got and no one no one put the brakes on identifying that child and 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 that is that I think is is the point sure sure that that needs some reflection but in 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 fairness to everyone involved I think the person who violated the trust here is the child who made up a story uh that um got everyone very excited uh, that is a mistake that uh, a child has made and now is rightly a, no one's business and unfortunately that's kind of that's that's kind of where where we end up um, thank you both very much
for your for your time. Thank you. Thank you both. That was Joseph Breen and Amira Al-Gawabi. Well, that's it for Pull Quotes this week. Thanks so much for catching up with us on our first episode of the new year. Pull Quotes is a production of the Ryerson Review of Journalism, and you can find more stories about journalism and media on our website at rrj.ca. And get in touch. You can now follow us on Twitter at our very own Twitter handle at PullQuotesRRJ. And you can get in touch there. Send us a message and give us your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Laura Howells, Emily Pardo, and myself, Jacob McNair. Thanks to Angela Glover for all her technical assistance. Executive producers are Sonia Fata and Stephen Trumper. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.